Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. And we're in Jonah chapter 2. <clears throat> Jonah, actually, the end of chapter 1, verse 17, and then chapter 2. One seventeen to 2.10 tonight. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. <clears throat> says, Then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for the Word that You've given to us. Lord, for each and every uh, Lord page of Scripture and each and every uh, chapter, Lord, the verses. Lord, every word we know has been ordained by You. Lord, that it has been breathed out by You and that it is profitable, uh, Lord, for us in order to make us complete and equipped for every good work. Father, we pray that tonight You would teach us, Lord, of how great is Your salvation, Lord, the mercy that You show uh, toward undeserving sinners. Lord, seeing that uh, Jonah deserved nothing but uh, Your judgment, Lord, Your wrath, uh, Lord, the just rewards for his disobedience, and yet You were gracious and merciful to him and You preserved his life. Uh, and so, Lord, though he was unfaithful, You remained faithful to him. And we certainly recognize that, Lord, this is true of each and every one of us, that our life and our testimony, Lord, is a pattern of repeated disobedience and unfaithfulness to You. And yet, Lord, we thank You that uh, though we stumble in many ways, Lord, You do not cast us away. Lord, You do not abandon us forever. But You are patient with us and that, Lord, You correct us and Lord, continue to perform your work of salvation within us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue that work tonight. Lord, that you would advance us in regards to our salvation. Lord, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, in that we would arrive into adulthood and into maturity in Him. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so in Jonah, uh, we're up here at uh, chapter 1, verse 17, and we remember that up to this point, God has called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and to cry out against it. Jonah refused uh, to listen to that call from God, but instead chose to flee from the presence of the Lord and uh, went to go to Tarshish. Then the Lord brought this great uh, storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. It was about to be destroyed. Uh, the sailors were frantically trying to uh, save themselves, save the ship, save everything there. Uh, while Jonah was uh, fast asleep there in the, in the ship. 
he was awakened there by the captain, uh, told to cry out to his God. Uh, they all were doing such things in order to try to find some relief from this great storm that was upon them. Uh, they ultimately determined to cast lots to, de- to find out uh, whose fault it was that this great calamity had come upon them. And the lot fell there upon Jonah. And this is when Jonah revealed to them who he was, the God that he served, and what it was that he was doing, namely that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. They were aghast at such things. Why are you doing this? And why have you brought us into this uh, entire scenario as well? Uh, and he told them that what would preserve and save them was if they cast him overboard. They didn't like that option, right? They sought uh, to row even harder to try to get back to shore. And yet, in spite of all of their efforts, uh, they made no progress, but things were getting more severe. And so finally, they resolved that the only thing they could do was to cast him uh, overboard. They prayed that God would not hold them guilty uh, for such things, not charge his death against them. And then they reluctantly cast him overboard, in which case the storm uh, ceased. It became calm and quiet. The sailors then uh, made vows to God and offered sacrifices uh, to him. And that is where we left off last week. Now, Jonah has been thrown overboard and he is now sinking down into, into the water, which is where things pick up in verse 17. And then 17 and then chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer, his prayer to God for deliverance and his prayer of thanksgiving to God because of the salvation that God gave to him. Because when he is thrown overboard, his expectation is that he's going to die, that this is the end of his life and that it will not continue on. And yet uh, God performs this miracle in order to preserve the life of Jonah so that Jonah, uh, his life on this earth is not over yet. Now, whether that is um, God preserving him alive in the fish for three days and three nights, or whether that is Jonah's death in drowning, and then God holding him there for three days in the fish, and then resurrecting him and bringing him back to life. Uh, Either way, his death was either going to happen, it was a surety, or it actually did happen, and God preserved his life, either by way of preservation or by way of resurrection. And there is more Uh, left for Jonah to do, more left for him to do. Namely, he is going to go to Nineveh. And so let's pick up then chapter 1, verse 17. There it says, The Lord appointed a fish, a great fish, to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Again, as far as Jonah knows, and as far as the sailors knew up to this point, and that would be something that would be interesting to know, at least to uh, wonder, did the sailors ever come across Jonah again, right? As far as they know, they throw him overboard, and that's the end of it. Yet Jonah lives on, uh, and they live on, but we don't know if they ever cross paths again. Uh, who knows? But as far as they knew, and as far as Jonah knew, they were, he was all but dead, right? They were throwing him into the sea, and he was going there to his death. However, God is not done with him yet, and he still has an appointment with the men of Nineveh, and God will get him there one way or the other. Right? The easy way would have been to be obedient to God at the first calling. When God called him and told him to go to Nineveh, he could have listened to the Lord. He could have obeyed the Lord. He could have boarded a ship or, or got on a donkey or a camel and gone over to Nineveh and did what God called him to do. Or he could do it the hard way, which is fleeing from the presence of the Lord And yet God is going to do whatever is necessary in order to chastise him and to conform his life to his will. And God will do this with all of his children. 
right? The prudent thing, the wise thing for us is to seek the will of God in the Word of God and then conform our lives as closely as we can to that will of God. But God will sanctify His people. He will purify us. This is His desire and His goal for our salvation, is that our salvation would be worked out, that it would be brought to its completion, that it would be progressed throughout this life. That comes through our obedience, through our faithfulness to Him, through the routine and the daily uh, devotion and, and steadfastness to Him. But there are times also when God must advance this through more difficult means, uh, through hardships, through afflictions, through sufferings. And such was the case with Jonah as well. It is an affliction to be swallowed by a fish for three days and three nights. That's not something that would be pleasant for anyone to endure or anyone to enjoy. To be vomited up by a fish is not something that would be pleasant to enjoy or endure. No one is chomping at the bit, you know, paying money to go and get vomited up by a fish. And yet, this is exactly what God did in the case of Jonah for his own benefit, for his sanctification. And God is committed to such things, and He will perfect His people in this life, and He will get our obedience to Him. <clears throat> and here, God's appointed means to preserve Jonah is the sending of this fish. And it reminds us of Psalm 115, verse 3, where it says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. God can do things that are wondrous, that are miraculous, that are uh, awe-inspiring, that are amazing. Whatever He desires, whatever He pleases, God is able to do such things. And here, He sends a great fish, right? A great fish to come and to uh, swallow Jonah and to preserve him from his impending death. Now, the sheer astonishment of something uh, like this has led to much speculation over the years. What kind of fish was it? Was it a fish or was it a whale? Because, you know, a whale is not technically a fish, but it's a mammal. You know, people will say things like this and try to figure out and speculate. And, and how could someone stay alive inside of a fish for three days? Or did he die and was he resurrected? All sorts of things that are not necessarily relayed to us in the text. And yet these are the things that people want to fixate upon. They get fascinated with these things and they want to talk about these types of things. They typically are looking for some natural explanation. And they do this not only with the case with Jonah, but in many cases in the Bible. The Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea. They look for some natural explanation. Well, there could have been this great wind, and it could have been over in this one place where it's really shallow, and then it could have pushed it away, and it would have appeared like it was dry. And they look for these kinds of natural explanations in order to uh, rationalize in their own mind, according to their own wisdom, what is recorded for us in the Bible. As if the nat uh, a natural explanation makes these things more believable. But what makes these things believable is not a natural explanation, but it is the first thing that is stated in verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish. Who is the one that appointed the fish to come? The Lord did, and God can do whatever He pleases. Had God wanted to create an alien and send him down on a ship to save Jonah, he could have done that because he can do whatever he wants to do. And whatever it requires in terms of power and might, God has all of the power and might to do such things. So if he wants to send a giant fish to swallow the prophet and preserve him in that way and then bring him out of that three days later, is that something that is too difficult for God to do? Is it something that is impossible for God to do? 
Well, of course not. Not if we believe in the God of the Bible, the God who has all power and all might and can do whatever he pleases, who can work wonders and work miracles. Yes, this is something that is impossible in the common natural sense. It is not normal and natural. People do not get swallowed by fish for three days and then live and come out the other side of it. That is something that is impossible. But it is also impossible for a virgin to conceive and to bear a son. It is also impossible for someone who is dead to be resurrected and to rise again three days later. It is impossible for someone to walk on the water. It is impossible for someone born blind to receive his sight. And yet in all of these situations and scenarios, all of which happen in the Bible are accounted and recorded in the pages of Scripture, who is the X factor in all of these things that makes what is impossible in terms of nature, in terms of the power of man, what makes these things possible is God. It is God's involvement and God's mind and power that He can do those things that are unnatural, that are uncommon, that are miraculous and wondrous. A miracle is by its very nature something that is contrary to nature. It doesn't typically work that way. If you step onto water, what naturally happens? What do the laws of nature dictate and determine will happen to you if you step onto water? You're going to sink, right? Because there are laws of nature and all sorts of things that people can tell you about that make it to where that is always going to happen. Yet God can do whatever He wants. And if He wants to suspend such laws and to go contrary to what is natural and common, then God can do such things in order to prove the power of His mind. And this is the case here in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord is behind it, and that is the key. The key uh, to our acceptance of this account of a man being swallowed by a fish, being in that fish for three days, being vomited out of that fish, and living after that, the believability of that is based upon God's involvement in it, right? And that is the point of it. It is a miracle from God. This is not something that is natural. Men do not get swallowed by fish for three days and live on the other side of it. And yet here it happens because God can do those things that are impossible. Genesis 18.14. Genesis 18.14. And we need to see that and understand that because though none of us have been swallowed by a fish, and I hope that none of you ever will be swallowed by a fish. You know, actually a good way for that not to happen is to stay off bodies of water that have fish that are big enough to swallow a man, right? So if you go to a lake or something where there's a bass, you know, five or six pounds, that can't swallow you. But if you get out into the ocean, there's no telling what's down there. Those things, I mean, they're, they're huge. They could just swallow you right up. Genesis 18, 14. Well, 13 and 14. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Here, it's not common and natural for a man who is 100 and a woman who is 90 for them to conceive and have a child, especially when she's been barren her whole life. And yet here, God announces that this is indeed going to happen. And is it too difficult for the Lord to do that? No, God can do whatever 
He pleases. Also in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, this would be to Mary when it was announced to her by the angel that she was going to conceive and bear a child, though she was a virgin and had never known a man. 1, 37. Actually, 34 to 37. <clears throat> Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And then Matthew 19, 26. Matthew 19, actually let's read 23 to 26. Matthew 19, 23 to 26. And Jesus said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Impossible with man, but with God all things are possible. A 90-year-old woman who is barren, conceiving and having a child, a virgin conceiving and having a child, the salvation of a rich man, that is possible with God, and somebody being swallowed by fish for three days and then living after that. All this is, impo is impossible for man, but all of it is possible with God. And that's good for us because our salvation is impossible for man, but it is possible with God. And what we need God to do for us is every bit as miraculous and every bit as great as what He did for Jonah. It's actually greater than what He did for Jonah. The salvation of any sinner takes the power of God, the miracle, mighty, wonder-working power of God. And this is why we must contend for these miracles in the Bible. And also, the creation of the world out of nothing. The first miracle is the act of creation. And if we believe in that God, the God who brought light out of darkness, who brought everything that we see and that now exists in the world, all of it He created out of nothing. Well, if He can do that, then can He send a fish to swallow a prophet? Of course He can. Can He bring someone who's dead back to life? Of course He can. He can do whatever He pleases. And this is the case here. Now, this swallowing of the fish is a twofold purpose, right? In the case of Jonah 1, it is the means of His preservation, His preservation, uh, His salvation, His deliverance. Uh, this is the tomb, uh, so to say, that He will be encased in for three days, right? Which preserves Him uh, from uh, the corruption that would come upon Him from death, okay? So He is preserved in that way. And then secondly, it is His uh, classroom by which He is taught to submit to the will of God. So He is taught lessons here that He needs to get through uh, his head, right? And many times we have very hard heads and it takes uh, hard, difficult discipline for something to really sink in. And that was the case with Jonah as well. And this gets his attention so that he comes out on the other side of it 
a better man than he was before, right? And that is all for his benefit and for ours as well. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. Here is then Jonah's prayer. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Here, Jonah finally communes with God. Now, up to this point, God has spoken to Jonah, but Jonah's response is to run away from him. And Jonah hasn't prayed to the Lord. Even when they were on the boat and everyone was crying out to their God, it's not recorded that Jonah was doing the same. Jonah relayed to them what the problem was. He told them the solution. He told them who he was and who he worshipped. But there's no recorded prayer of Jonah there in chapter 1. This is the first time that Jonah speaks to the Lord, that he prays to the Lord, that he calls out to God. Up to this point, it's only rebellion. It's only uh, a resistance to the will of God. But now, finally, the prophet is calling out to God. And this is, again, why discipline is for our good. It's for our benefit. We mentioned this last week. The worst possible thing that could happen to Jonah in this entire scenario is not being thrown overboard. It's not being swallowed by a fish. It would have been safe passage to Tarshish, and him living out the rest of his days outside of the will of God in rebellion and disobedience to God. The best thing that can happen to him is for him to be shaken out of this stupor and brought back into conformity to the will of God. And if that takes being a storm and being thrown into the sea and being swallowed by a fish, then so be it. And here, the desired result is produced. Because here now, Jonah is praying to the Lord in distress he cried out to God, and God answered him. Then verse 2. Verse 2 gives us a summary of his prayer. Chapter 2, verse 2. He said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. In his distress, he cried out to God. Right? This is as it says in the psalm, that it was good that you afflicted me, right? that I might learn your uh, your word, right? It is good when God afflicts us that we might learn, that we might call out, that we might cry out to Him. And in this case, it was in His distress that He cried out to God. This is how children often are. The child is fine. He's happy. He doesn't need his parents. But when the child is injured, when the child hurts himself, when he's in distress, what is the natural impulse of the child? to cry out for one of his parents, usually his mom, not the dad. Typically, it's the mom they go for because they know they're going to comfort them, you know, give them whatever they want. <clears throat> they call out to them, and then what does the parent do? They come and they comfort them. They care for them. They do those things that are good for their child. And in the same way, when we are in distress spiritually, the natural impulse of the child of God during afflictions is to cry out to God to go to God and ask God to deliver him and to help him, to give him grace and mercy in his time of need. And again, we are typically very hard-headed, and we are typically, whenever we have long seasons of ease and comfort, where everything goes exactly as we want, then we forget God. We forget the Lord in our prosperity, and this is why it is necessary for God to exercise us with afflictions, with disciplines, so that we will cry out to God. And this is the case here. In his distress, he cried out to God, and then what did God do? He answered me, right? He answered me. He heard me. 
He listened, right? He delivered me. He gave to me what I asked and what I requested from the Lord. And really, this is true of every sinner. Every sinner who truly repents of his sins, right? Who is truly saved, this is what all of them do. They are in distress. Whenever we come to a recognition and an understanding of our own sinfulness, such as the uh, tax collector, when, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector was in distress because he had an awareness and understanding of his own sin. And in his distress, what did he do? He cried out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is part of what we've been talking about on Sundays in Hebrews chapter 7. The purpose of the law is to bring to us an awareness of the distress that we are in because of our sins against God, the judgment of God that is upon us to bring us to this point where we are completely lost and completely undone. And the only recourse we have is to cry out to God for salvation and for deliverance. This is what Peter and the apostles did in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Whenever they were there preaching the gospel to the men of Jerusalem, they put the death of Christ, they placed it on their feet, on their head. They are the ones that did that. And what was the result when the men came to this realization of the great evil that they had done? They said, what must we do to be saved? Right? What should we do? Right? What should we do? We are in distress. Right? We are in a difficult situation. We have an understanding of our judgment that the condemnation of God is upon us. What should we do? They should cry out to God. Cry out to God for mercy, for deliverance, for forgiveness, cry out to Him for Him to rescue you and to save you from all of your sins. Right? We cannot save ourselves. All we can do is cry out to God. This is the only thing that we can do, is cry out to God to beg for His grace and to beg for His mercy. Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verses 4 to 9. And when I say all we can do is cry out, I'm not saying that the crying out comes from our own will or it's something that's even produced by our own strength. Even that has to be given to us by God. Even that has, is a gift that God must give to us. We are dead. How can a dead man cry? Only if he is born again. But once a man is born again, his first impulse is to cry out to God, to cry out to God for deliverance. Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him... There is no want. I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This is what God will do for all of His children. He will deliver us from all of our fears. He will safely bring us into His heavenly kingdom. God will do this for all of us. And in this life, we have to have our trials, our temptations, our sufferings, our hardships, our enemies, our reproaches, that is necessary in this life. But we cry out to God, 
and God will deliver us. He will deliver us from all of these things, and in due time, He will safely bring us into His heavenly kingdom. Jonah chapter 2, verse 3. Verses 3 to 6, the first part of 6, are describing uh, a fuller description of his distress, right? He's, he's describing, using poetry, what it's like for him to be drowning, to be cast into the sea, to be sinking down, right? The weeds are wrapping around his head. The waves, the billows are enclosing upon him. So it's a very uh, vivid picture of a man who is drowning, right? Of drowning and sinking down into his death. Verse 3, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Here, he's being cast overboard into the deep, into the heart of the seas, out in the middle of the sea when there's no hope of swimming to land, no hope of finding anything by which a man might be preserved, might be saved from this doom. He's there in the heart of the sea, completely surrounded by water. The current has engulfed him, right? He's being pulled under by this current. Those things are out in the ocean as well. It's another reason you ought to stay out of the ocean. Not only are there the big fish, but there's currents that will suck you right out, right? Miles away. And then next thing you know, you're gone. You're out there in the current. Breakers and billows pass over. There's waves, right, that come crashing down upon you. And they drown you. And you try to get up and get another breath. And next thing you know, another wave comes down. And it hits you over and over again so that you're sitting there trying to survive, doing all that you can, and yet no matter how hard you work, it's going to happen, right? You're going to drown. You're going to drown out there, there in the water. Verse 4, So I said, I have been expelled from your sight, and nevertheless I will look again toward your holy temple. Here, there is this recognition that he's getting what he deserves, right? I have been expelled from your sight, Right, the way I am being treated, right, what I am getting now is the just rewards of my own disobedience. Right, I've been expelled from your sight, meaning not that God is unaware of what's going on here. God's the one who threw him in the deep. He means it in the sense of God's favor. God's favor. God looking upon him in a favorable way in this very moment. It, this is what it feels like to him: is that God has rejected him, that God has cast him off. However, he still has hope. Because he says, nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. He knows that God will not utterly forsake him, right? And this is true of all believers. Even in the most dire of situations, even when it may seem that God has rejected us, that God has expelled us from his sight, there is always this hope, this longing, this confidence that we will again look upon the holy temple of the Lord, no matter what may come upon us whether that be in this life or whether that be in the life to come, that we will be with the Lord. Verse 5, Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. Here, now, the water is encompassing him to the point of death. He's been engulfed by the great deep. The weeds of the bottom of the ocean are wrapping around him. And he talks about descending to the roots of the mountains. There at the very bottom of the ocean where these mountains are formed, where they have their basis, their roots, this is where he is sinking down. He's sinking down into the depths of the sea, down to the very bottom. And again, there is no hope for him of deliverance by himself. As far as he knows, he is going there 
to his death. This is what it is for him. It is a type of dying, a type of death that he is experiencing as he is there in the deep being brought into this watery grave. Then verse 6b. Now from here to the rest is a fuller description of his deliverance. So he's talked about his distress. Now what God did for him. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah's rebellion brought him into this circumstance where he is in distress. Right? We remember that God called to Jonah, yet Jonah refused to listen to God's call. Jonah ignored the Lord. He fled from the Lord. And Jonah's doing that was completely unjust. Right? Jonah unjustly rejected the call of God because God's call to him was not an evil call. This is a blessing. It is a blessing for God to choose a man and make him one of his prophets and to give him a special commission from the Lord to go and to preach his word to these people. And in this relationship, who's the creator and who's the creature? God is the creator and he can do with his creatures whatever he pleases. So Jonah has no right to refuse to do what God has told him to do. So all of this that came upon Jonah, it was all his fault. It was because of his sin. Now, God called to him, and Jonah did not listen. God could have responded sin for sin, right? Not sin for sin, because God cannot sin, but kind for kind, tooth for tooth, eye for eye. I called to you, and you didn't listen to me. Now you're calling to me, so why should I pay regard to you, right? Why should I listen to you because you didn't listen to me? So I will refuse you. God could have completely and justifiably responded to Jonah like this. And there is a sense in which God does do this to the wicked, right? To the wicked and to the unbelieving. When they cry out to God in their distress, especially on the day of judgment, God will not listen to them. He will not listen to them and He will not deliver them. We know of the parables of the ten virgins, the ones that are left out, how they are there knocking, asking to be let in, and there the bridegroom says, I don't know who you are. We know of those who cry out, Lord, Lord, did we not uh, perform miracles and do many mighty wonders in your name? And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There they are crying out to God, and yet God refuses them. He does not listen to them. He does not hear their prayer. And it is true that for the wicked, those who presume upon God's grace, that when they cry out to God in their distress, God will refuse them and He will not answer them, especially those who pay regard to vain idols. They pay regard to their idols and their idols can't deliver them and then they want to cry out to God for God to come and rescue them. And He tells them, go to your idols, right? Go cry out to your idol, let Him deliver you and save you in the day of calamity. And this is God giving men justice, right? Whenever He treats them in such a way. Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs 1 20 to 33 gives us such a description. Those who reject and who spurn the wisdom of God, then whenever they cry out in their day of distress, wisdom will not answer them back. Proverbs 1, 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. 
She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes, when your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Here, in this case, the fool, the naive, the wicked man who rejected the wisdom of God, who did not heed whenever wisdom cried out to him, well, whenever he cries out for wisdom, for help in the day of calamity, there will be no answer. Instead, wisdom will mock them, will ridicule them and say, you're getting what you deserve. And this is what God gives to unbelievers, to the wicked. He gives them justice so that when they cry out to God on the day of judgment or in any other time in their life when they have uh, some difficulty, some distress that comes upon them, everyone gets religious and wants to cry out to God. But they don't have a right, a privilege to draw near to the throne of grace because who is the only one that can open that up for us? Only our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the one that grants us that privilege. And if a man is not united to him by faith, then he has no right to cry out to God to help him in his time of need. However, in Jonah's case, Jonah did not get justice. Instead, Jonah received grace and mercy. And this is what God does for His children, for His believers. Though Jonah, in a sense, was no better than the people of Proverbs chapter 1. Right? It is true that Jonah was behaving foolishly. He was acting like a fool in his unbelief, right? in his disobedience to God. But the difference is, is that Jonah is not an unbeliever. Jonah is a true child of God. He is a true believer. And what he's doing is a temporary, it's a momentary failing, but this is not who he is, right? He is a child of God. And because of God's grace and mercy to us, he remembers who we are and he does not treat us according to what our sins deserve. And we have an example of that in Jonah because God called to Jonah and Jonah refused to listen. But then Jonah cried to God and what did God do? God heard him. God answered him. God delivered him. And this is the difference between the wicked and the righteous, between the believer and the unbeliever. The unbeliever receives justice from God. When they cry out to God, God does not hear. The believer, even though he may be unfaithful to God, yet when God brings him to his senses and he cries out to God, God answers him. God delivers him. God hears him and God helps him. And who is the one that makes the difference? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is Him standing as our mediator, standing as our surety between God that gives us this right and this privilege to cry out to God even when we are unfaithful. 
Because when we are unfaithful, who remains faithful as our mediator? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is always faithful. And our access to God is not based upon our performance. It's based upon His performance and what He has done on our behalf. And this is why God answers us and God hears us even when we are unfaithful to Him such as Jonah was. Psalm 103. Psalm 103, 8 to 14. And yes, we always, we do need to remember that we all have a little bit of Jonah in us. Actually, we probably have a lot of bit of Jonah in all of us, right? We are no different than him many times. And yet, what do we find? We find that God is gracious toward his people. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from Him. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God knows our frame. He knows who we are. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we are unfaithful. And yet, he maintains his faithfulness to us. And he answers us. He hears us. He doesn't strive with us forever. He will strive with us for a season, as he did with Jonah. But he does that not to destroy us, but to sanctify us and so that we might cry out to Him and then He can come and comfort us and give us His grace and mercy and His compassion. So God remembered the frame of Jonah. God remembered that Jonah was dust. God remembered that Jonah was a weak, frail man and God was merciful to him in spite of Jonah's unfaithfulness to God. Jonah was unfaithful but God remained faithful to him because God cannot deny himself. That is our hope. That is our hope, not our own measly, putrid obedience to God, not our faithfulness to God, but it is God's faithfulness to us and Jesus Christ's faithfulness to us as our mediator. This is where our hope and our confidence lies that we will be heard and we will be delivered by the Lord. This is how God deals with us each and every day. Because do we not have our daily sins? We have our daily sins, right? Every day we have our daily sins. And yet God remembers who we are and He does not treat us according to what our sins deserve, but He has compassion upon us because all those sins have been paid for through the death of His Son. And therefore God continues to be gracious to His people. Jonah was fainting away. He was as good as dead. And he remembered the Lord and his prayer came to God into God's holy temple and God heard him. Verse 8 is here as a contrast to how God responds to his people. The great blessings and benefits and privileges we have to call out to God. And, uh, and yet in contrast to that, what is true of those who worship idols, right? What, those who worship idols. Verse 8, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Idols cannot deliver us. 
Had Jonah cried out to Zeus or Poseidon or some other false god, um, he would have, there'd have been no help for him, right? They could not have come and done anything for him, right? And here we are reminded that this book is written for the children of Israel who are themselves very idolatrous people. Jonah was in distress. He cried out to God and God answered him. The Israelites are fixing to be in distress because God's going to send the men of Nineveh to come to them and to destroy them in only a, a matter of 50 or 60 years. But if they don't turn to the Lord, then there will be no help for them because everyone who pays regard to vain idols forsakes their faithfulness. They're not faithful to God and God will not be faithful to them because they prove themselves to be apostate and far from the Lord. Then verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. Here, his ultimate conclusion is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Those who receive God's grace and mercy, the response they have to that is to worship God. If there is not a desire in us to worship God, as we reflect upon His grace and mercy, then that proves that we don't have His grace and mercy. Because anyone who has experienced the salvation of God, their natural response is to worship the Lord. And this is what Jonah has received. This is why he is saying, I will sacrifice to you. I will give to you the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Salvation belongs to God. And again, there, notice, it is salvation is from the Lord. Right. It's not from the Lord and from man. It's not from the Lord and the saints or Mother Mary uh, or anyone else or some other lesser deity. And all of them are working together to produce it. Salvation is from the Lord. It is all a work of God. He is the one who brings it about. He is the one who delivers His people. Jonah's only contribution to everything that happened here is his own sin. This is our contribution. We bring the sin, but who brings the salvation? God. So it's all our fault, and yet He is the one that does everything for us. And when we think about that, it should cause us to love Him, to be thankful, right? Shouldn't we say thank you? Isn't that what we teach our children? At a very young age, one of the first things we teach them. If someone does some kindness for them, they should say thank you to them. Well, what greater kindness can there be than deliverance from all of our sins? Forgiveness in the grace of God, eternal life, peace with God. This is what Christ has given to us. So how can we not be grateful to Him and thankful for all of His many blessings. And this is one of the marks or traits of ungodly people, right? They refuse to acknowledge God or give thanks to Him. They do not thank God, it says in Romans chapter 1. Here, Jonah, his desire is now to worship God. So, Then in verse 10, we have the conclusion of the chapter, and that is, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Here, now, he has been disobedient. He has repented. Uh, God has taught him this lesson. And now, God is going to send him on his way to do what he called him to do in the first place. And so now, he sends the fish, and the fish vomited him up, onto the dry land, which 
you know, would have probably not been a good experience either, right, to be in a fish vomit. Yet, you know, it's better than being dead. And this is where he is at now. And so now he has an appointment with Nineveh, and that is what we'll pick up in chapter 3. A couple of other things just for us to consider as we conclude tonight. One thing in chapter 2 that we see is it is replete with the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty over all things. One, we see God's sovereignty over the actions of men. Over the actions of men. Remember what it said in chapter 1 verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. There the they is the sailors. The sailors picked up Jonah, and the sailors threw him into the sea. But then in chapter 2, verse 3, when Jonah is praying, who does he accredit his being cast into the sea to? He says, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. So who was it? Did the sailors throw Jonah into the sea? Or was it God who threw Jonah into the sea? And the answer is both. It is both. God is the primary actor. He is the one whose will is primary in all things. Yet God uses secondary means. He uses human instruments in order to accomplish His will. God's will was that Jonah would be thrown into the sea. God determined all of this from ages past, before the world was even created, God had already decreed all of these things. And then God brings it about and He uses people to accomplish His will on earth. God is primary, and yet the men are the instruments used to accomplish and to bring about His will on earth. Genesis 45, 4-8, Joseph recognized this as well whenever he ascribed to the Lord his being sent into Egypt, though his brothers were the, the human agents that were responsible for his being brought into Egypt, Joseph recognized and saw that ultimately this came about because of the will of the Lord. Genesis 45, verses 4 to 8. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourself, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all of his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So there, though Joseph recognizes and acknowledges the brother's role in what transpired and what took place, he also sees that behind this, the greater purpose is that it was God who sent him there in order to preserve their life. God is the primary one. God is the one that was sovereign over everything that happened, over the malice, the anger of his brothers, over their desire to murder him. They're casting him into this pit, this uh, random caravan of Ishmaelites that came by that they sold him to because they didn't want to shed his blood. All of those things came about according to the will of God so that exactly what God wanted is what came about, which is Joseph in Egypt before this famine comes 
And then everything that happened to Joseph in Egypt, being bought by Potiphar, then being thrown into prison, and then his interaction with the, the baker and the cupbearer of the Pharaoh, the dreams, all of that was orchestrated according to the will of God. And yet in all of that, there are many people who are involved and they have their will, they have their decisions, they have their choices that they are making. But behind all of it, God is the one who is directing, who is sovereign over every single thing so that His will is what is accomplished and what comes about. And there is no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. Men are responsible for their decisions, for their actions, for what they do, even though God is sovereign over all of those things. And there is no contradiction in the Bible between those two things, but they are in complete, perfect harmony with one another. God can be in control, and man can still be held responsible for his own deeds and for his own actions, which is why in Genesis 50 verse 20, there, Joseph tells his brothers that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for, for good. As it came from the brothers, it was coming from evil, from sin, and they are responsible for that sin. But as it came from God, it was being motivated and coming from the good desires of God in order to bring about this present deliverance and this great salvation. So there you see God's sovereignty over the men, also, you see God's sovereignty over nature, over cre the created order. He's the one that sent the storm. He's the one that sent the fish, right? He did all those things, right? He controls everything in this present world, and He can do whatever He pleases with His own creation. And then also, God's sovereignty over salvation is seen in this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the one who accomplishes it and brings it all about. Also, in this we see a proper response to sin and to salvation, to sin and forgiveness, right? And this is important because much of our Christian life <clears throat> is that we commit sin and then we repent, right? Sin and forgiveness. This is a huge part of our Christian life. Are we not taught by our Lord Jesus in the Lord's Prayer to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? that we are to pray continually for God to forgive us of our sins, of our daily sins. Just as we need daily bread, so we also need daily grace and mercy from God. So much of our Christian life is our failings. We read about that in Proverbs 24 on Sunday afternoon. The righteous stumbles seven times a day, yet he will rise again. We have our stumblings seven times a day. So how do we respond when we sin, and we be, when we become aware of our sin, when we come under the conviction of sin? Well, we repent. We repent of our sins. That is the proper response to our sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We must confess our sins to God, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Then when we receive that forgiveness, what should we do? Well, what did Jonah do when he experienced the salvation of God? He was thankful. He praised God. He worshiped God. So we respond to sin by repentance, and then we respond to salvation or forgiveness by thanksgiving, by thanksgiving and praise to God. And this is what the Christian life is. We sin, we repent, we receive forgiveness, we thank God, we praise God, we strive to live a godly life, we fail, 
we ask for forgiveness, we receive grace, we thank God over and over and over and over again throughout the course of our life. And then lastly, we again see here uh, this similarity between Jesus and Jonah, right? That there is this continuity between the two in terms of Jonah serving as a type uh, and Jesus being the fulfillment of what was prefigured in the person of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that was a prefigurement of the Son of Man being in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, typ typifying beforehand the death and the resurrection of Christ. Just as Jonah died and was in the belly of the fish for three days, and then was vomited out, so Jesus will die, be in the belly of the earth for three days, and then will be vomited out, right? He will come out of that, and he will come out gloriously and victoriously, right? But he will come out in a greater way than Jonah, because we will see in Jonah 3 and 4 that Jonah still, he still has his issues, right? He's still not a perfect man. He's still grumbling, complaining. He has his failures even after this experience. Jesus had no failings beforehand, and he had no failings afterwards. But in all, he was perfectly righteous and perfectly sinless in all that he did. And we see in both Jonah and Jesus is what is usually bad, right? Normally something that is bad in an unfavorable circumstance, God is able to turn it and use it and bring good out of it. Normally, getting swallowed by a fish is bad. That's bad providence, right? That's a bad circumstance that you do not want. But in the case of Jonah, his being swallowed by a fish was a good thing, right? God took something that normally would be evil and bad and used it for good. And in the case of Jesus, death is typically, normally, that's not a good thing, right? Death is a sign of the curse. It is a sign of the judgment of God. It is a sign of the reality of sin in this world. Right? Death is something foreign to the world that God created, and it is a result of our sin. Right? We are subject to fear of death all of our lives. And yet in the case of Christ, His death is something that is good because it brings about the redemption and the salvation of His church. God brings good out of evil. He also did that with Joseph. Getting sold into slavery by your brothers, that's not a good thing, right? We don't recommend that our children do such things to their siblings. Yet in the case of Joseph, who also is a lively type of Christ, God brought good out of evil. <clears throat> he brought it out of his own brothers betraying him. It happened to Jesus as well. It was his own countrymen, his own brothers who put him to death. And yet God brought a great salvation, a great deliverance out of this horrible circumstance. And this is what God continues to do in this present world, and He does it in our lives as well. So, reason for us to rejoice in what God has done and what God will continue to do throughout the course of our life. Taking everything, even the evil, and turning it for our good. Turning it for our good and for His glory.